the basic truths about economics have not gone away because of QE and COVID. It is that, you know, we have to make our way in the world. We have to uh, survive by living within our means. And in the end, the eternal laws of economics don't change. Um, and when COVID is over, there will be a massive uh, amount of economic uh, thinking and taxation uh, consequences and so forth. And I will talk a little bit about those during my remarks. But the big picture of politics in Britain and around the world is, of course, the effect of the pandemic. Um, and uh, we see what's happening in India at the moment, which is which is uh, appalling and tear-jerking and deeply uh, worrying. I have friends in India who I spoke to yesterday, and they are very frightened by what is happening there. And so in the UK, we're reminded that although the vaccine success has been really quite remarkable, nevertheless, uh, we are, we are um, operating in a global situation. And although we're doing well now, there's no reason why it shouldn't come back. And of course, we shouldn't forget either that in some ways, and you'll find it hard to believe I'm actually saying this, this pandemic has been relatively benign. Imagine if this pandemic had actually been attacking children or whether it, instead of being older people who were most vulnerable, it was the younger cohort that was most vulnerable. It would be, uh, you know, very, very much more serious than the extraordinarily serious nature of it in any event. So that remains the big picture. And of course, the UK's success which has been remarkable in terms of the vaccine rollout, uh, doesn't hide the fact that in the end, we, we won't be safe in Britain until, we're, until everywhere is safe. And therefore, Britain, as a former international development leader, really does have the intellectual as well as the physical duty of making sure that vaccines reach the poorest parts of, of the world. Otherwise, we'll never be free from this and we won't ever get genuine herd immunity, which which does come when, as we've seen in other uh, diseases around the world, you manage to get um, a, uh, a threshold which which gives that herd immunity and means that life is it returns to normal and is very much uh, safer. And it's worth reflecting, too, with my international development hat on that the African leaders are saying this time, you know, when it came to HIV AIDS, which killed millions of people in Africa, we had to wait for charity from the rich world. And we don't expect to do that this time. We expect the lessons to be learned and international solidarity to be the watchword. Um, and I very strongly agree with that. And COVAX, the system by which vaccinations reach the poor world, is uh, doing a very good job, but it does require uh, real leadership from the rich world to make sure that jabs get into arms in poorer countries. And that's a leadership role which falls to Britain at the G7 and where Britain is in an extremely weak position because although we were an international development leader, the slashing of the 0.7 commitment and promise that was made means that we're simply not in a position financially to lead the way. And we get into the quite absurd position where Britain is hosting a replenishment for girls' education in the poorest parts of the world, but is actually slashing by four million the number of girls who will get into school this year. So Britain is in a, in a tricky position. And you may or may not have seen uh, that I and others have been trying very hard to get the government into a better place on this. Um, and so far without any uh, notable success. So the big picture is about COVID and the economic effects of that and, of course, the points that Phil has talked about. Now, moving to a more uh, parochial position, we do, as Phil said, have elections next week, and they are 
they are very important for British politics. I mean, the election in Scotland is particularly important for whether or not it gives uh, a boost or the reverse to independence. And the uh, requirement uh, of those elections, if, the, if, the, if there's an overall majority for the SNP, will be that that is a mandate for uh, an independence referendum. And in my view, Westminster will not be able to resist that, or you get into the Catalonian position, where they will have a referendum anyway, and they will set it up with all the panoply of election day, ballot boxes, ballot papers, uh, polling stations, and that will enhance their mandate. So in the end, if, if the Westminster government ignores that, and they can do that without having uh, legal permission from uh, Westminster to do so, uh, that would uh, put a, put the union in even greater jeopardy. In my view, there will at some point have to be another referendum, and it will be necessary for those of us who believe in the union to try and make the case that we are much better and stronger together. Uh, but my point for today is that the result next week will either enhance or damage the uh, lust of the SNP for independence. And, and the, the second most important contest is probably that of Andy Street in the West Midlands. Andy Street has been a very good mayor. It's my second greatest political objective this year to make sure that Andy is re-elected. And I think he will be. And he got elected last time by 3,000 votes. This is a 30 parliamentary constituency um, area. And so uh, that's effectively 100 votes per constituency. And so you can see that it was incredibly tight. My judgment today, and you know, I may be wrong about this, but my judgment today is that uh, he will win by, uh, by very considerably more than that. He'll certainly, I think, get into five figures rather than four. Um, and uh, subject to any change in the national sentiment, then I think he will, he will, uh, he will be successful and be re-elected. Why? Because he is a conservative plus plus rather than a conservative minus. He reaches out uh, to non-traditional conservative voters. And of course, he's a very considerable businessman. And, and what does the West Midlands, like any other area of the country, need coming out of COVID? It needs, you know, really strong business sense. It needs to ensure that we have growth, that we invest in the skills of our young people and that he negotiates with government. And of course, he's a far better negotiator with government than the a Labour mayor would be because a Labour mayor can be told by the government to, to push off. But it's very difficult for them to do that to a Conservative mayor of their own persuasion. So, so I'm optimistic about the West Midlands. Uh, I'm less optimistic about uh, Scotland. Though I think if you look at the polling today that Lord Ashcroft has released, sentiment in favour of independence does appear to have waned a little. Uh, but it's not just Scotland, of course. The, the convulsions in Ireland caused by Brexit and by the strain on the Good Friday Agreement, the Anglo-Irish um, Agreement, an international concern about that. Uh, and the polling suggests, too, that sentiment there is changing. And in Wales also, we've seen recently um, a, an uptick in nationalism. So, so, you know, this is all extremely dangerous for the future of uh, what has been a phenomenally successful union now for more than 300 years. Now, what could shift the national sentiment? And of course, the obvious thing is Sleaze, and uh, Sleaze is, is back, is Labour's uh, uh, statement. And I remember I was sitting next to John Major uh, on the front bench at PMQs when Blair 
launched his great attack on the Tories for sleaze. And there was some truth in it. But he, I remember he described the Tory party as mired in sleaze. And, you know, uh, I remember John Major sitting back hard, almost as if he'd been shot. And it was a very direct and ruthless attack. Um, and Tony Blair, in his autobiography, says it was a mistake because, of course, it spatters all politicians. And, you know, people forget the rules of history. And uh, uh, Keir Starmer may live to regret uh, what he is trying to do. But the interesting thing is it doesn't seem to have anything like the same cut through as it did in 1995, 1996. And um, I think the reason for that is partly Boris. Uh, and I remember at the last general election, campaigning in the red wall seats of the West Midlands. And um, I remember saying to people, are you going to vote Conservative? And they said, no, I am going to vote for Boris. And Boris, you know, I think it's you shouldn't talk about politicians being unique, but I, I genuinely think Boris is uh, unique in that almost everything is discounted in the price, as investment people might uh, put it. And, you know, this is an extraordinary phenomenon. I mean, I don't think I can't think of any other political leader uh, who would have survived the Jennifer R. Cully revelations uh, in the tabloid press some weeks ago, uh, they would have been catapulted into political outer space. And yet with Boris, it didn't even make the front pages, really. It was sort of completely discounted. And, you know, it reminds me of the time when, when Disraeli, many years ago, was told that Palmerston, prime minister, had allegedly fathered a child at the age of 90, and Israeli's reaction was, for goodness sake, don't tell the public or he'll sweep the country. And, that, you know, there's a bit of that, I think, in, 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 uh, in Boris. And then you've got the question about his wallpaper and so on, which, which I think there's a, the metropolitan elite in the, within the M25 beltway are getting very excited about this. But actually, I don't think outside of the metropolitan boundaries, that is traveling very much. I think many people think, well, you know, this is the flat that the prime minister has to live in above where he works. What's the great fuss about, particularly if our constituents aren't having to pay for it? So I'm not sure that that gets any cut through at all. And I think part of the reason why Downing Street is not being definitive about who paid for what is because I think they're looking at a better, more sensible arrangement whereby an incoming prime minister doesn't have to put their hand in their own pocket to buy their furniture for what is effectively a state home. And there must be, I think, a better way of of doing it. So, you know, I'm 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 pretty clear, really, that uh, we 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 that's not really getting cut through. I think what is what is more more worrying and I hope I don't sound too sanctimonious in saying this is is that that we it's very important indeed we don't let the uh, standards of probity in public life diminish by mistake. You know, if you uh, don't register uh, as you should within the time scale uh, on the register of members' interest to which all members of parliament are, are beholden, if you don't register things in times and you're always late, it shows a disrespect for the rules. If you don't replace the ethics czar, and Alex Allen resigned when, when the Prime Minister rejected his advice on Priti Patel, then uh, I'm afraid we start to slip back in standards of probity and transparency, where Britain in the past has always been rather proud of its record and has always tried quite hard to set an international example. And, and that would be a, 
big mistake. You know, I am a former government chief whip, so I don't like voting against my party and my government, but I certainly would have done on the issue of breaking international law over the agreement uh, on Brexit in respect of Northern Ireland and the uh, border down the Irish uh, Sea. I, I, I would not have gone along with a government that wanted to breach international law. And I very much hope that most of my colleagues would have taken the same view. So the, these are much more important issues, in my view, than the issue of the Downing Street uh, wallpaper. Um, and also the danger, for example, of the Priti Patel bullying uh, accusation. And I like Priti Patel, and I think she's a she's she's quite a good Home Secretary, and I think she's a very good uh, example, actually, of social mobility. You know, uh, a non-white a uh, woman who has got to the very top of British politics and she's done it on merit and skill and her own uh, sheer force of personality. That's a very uh, encouraging uh, sign. So I'm very much on her side. But equally, you've got to be careful that it doesn't appear to be a sort of band of brothers and sisters uh, from the Brexit stable who um, uh, appear to be pulling together and riding roughshod over the conventions. And there's a there's a balance. There. I'm not being critical of the of, of what happened and the fact the fact that she stayed as Home Secretary. I'm just I'm just worried about undermining conventions upon which British public life depend and also actually upon which which uh, all of our liberties and freedoms depend showing respect for 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 those uh, convention. Now the final thing I really want to say in the last five minutes of my of my allotted time um, is about the current position uh, in terms of parliament because there's a very strong convention in Britain that the executive uh, governs and that parliament grants it the necessary powers um, and what we have seen uh, recently is parliament uh, being ineffective at holding the executive to account and that's that's neither Parliament nor the executive's fault. It is because of the problems that COVID has inevitably made about us meeting together. And I think I think members of the public are entitled to say that Parliament needs to hold the executive in check and must do so. And uh, we are we are not being able to do that because Parliament can't physically meet. We are all having to communicate electronically. Uh, we can't even vote uh, by and large, um, and we are very strongly encouraged to keep away from Westminster and to operate remotely. And Parliament has given the executive draconian powers over our liberties and over our freedoms in order to combat COVID. And the equation for the country is this. We, we must protect the National Health Service. We must ensure that it's not overrun. And we must ensure that people's health care is absolutely at the top of the list. But on the other side of the equation is the economic effects of this. The fact that last year we borrowed £400 billion to cope with COVID um, and, and, and the fact that uh, that money has to be earned. The, as I said at the beginning of my remarks, the laws of economics haven't uh, really changed. Um, and it's making sure that the economy survives that is is the other side of that equation and is so very important. I know from my constituency in the royal town of Sutton Coalfield, I know just how difficult so many business people have found it to cling on. Many are clinging on by their fingertips, particularly in the hospitality and entertainment uh, industry. And they are under very, very great pressure. And 
you know, that's the other side of the equation. And I see it every week as I return to my constituency. I see the, the, the dangers this means, the increase in youth unemployment. And, you know, we are seeing in uh, Britain a generation now of younger people who are missing out. They're missing out on, on often on the training opportunities which we took for granted. They're missing out on a university or further education uh, experience. And, and incidentally, they are the first generation since the First World War who think they won't be better off than their parents' generation. And, you know, these are the effects of COVID, and some of them may be very long term, on the life chances of many people, but most especially the the younger generation. And uh, that's that's one of the reasons why we need to get this balance between health and the economy uh, right. I'm 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 one of those who wants to veer always on the side of civil liberties and of uh, trying to ensure that we open up as quickly as we possibly can without going backwards in terms of of health. Um, and that's the job of Parliament. Ministers are finding that uh, absolute power is absolutely wonderful. And being able to operate by executive fiat without having to come and justify yourself to large numbers of disgruntled members of Parliament, which is the way in which democracy works, is not good for our body politic. And it's not good, in my view, for my constituents. So I could say... Uh, some disobliging things about the government's policies on, on development, uh, to which I'm very strongly opposed. You shouldn't go back on a promise that you made just a year ago uh, in the general election to stand by Britain's development commitments. You shouldn't go back on that. Particularly, you shouldn't go back at a time of a general uh, pandemic around the world where the poorest will suffer first and hardest from that. Uh, and to break that promise, a uh, promise enshrined in law, uh, so that the breaking of it is, is, is uh, at least on the face of things, unlawful, and not even to have the courage to have a vote in the House of Commons. Uh, this is a very bad sign for any uh, government. Uh, and as uh, Talleyrand once said, it's, it's worse than a crime, it's a mistake. And uh, I am uh, very critical of the government in that respect. But in, in respect of uh, the handling of the COVID crisis, I don't think you can uh, attack the government for early mistakes without giving them credit for the vaccination rollout. And uh, the vaccination rollout has been an enormous success. It's been an example uh, to the world, not least to continental uh, Europe. And I very much hope that as a country, we can build on that success. Can, uh, definitely meet our international obligations too, to less fortunate parts of the world, and that that will be part of uh, the way we deliver the growth figures that Phil mentioned in his opening remarks, uh, and which are so important to our country's recovery and future success. Thank you very much.